Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are conceived that one died for all, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he was committed to us, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks, Pete. Please keep your Bibles open there to 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, there's an outline on your handout on the back. If you want to follow along or if you want to take notes, you can. I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this immense blessing that we see in your passage today. Please clear our minds and uh, help us to focus on your word now for this little while, uh, that we might see clearly this extraordinary blessing to us all and that we might um, take full advantage of this wonderful gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the normal clicker is broken. I've got this imaginary clicker in my hand. I'm going to see if it works. There we go. Beautiful. All right, it works. Good. Um, so we all know that Anthony Albanese is the 31st and current Prime Minister of Australia. There he is, um, looking like a man who's just won Prime Ministership. Um, what you may not know is just how unlikely it was for him to ascend to this position. Uh, it was on a cruise from Sydney to England that his mother met a steward who worked on the ship. She slept with the, him and once she arrived in England, they parted ways never to speak again and she fell pregnant uh, with Anthony. Uh, they lived, when they moved back home, they settled in Camperdown in Housing Commission and they also lived with her parents. When Anthony was seven, his mother married an abusive alcoholic and the marriage lasted just ten weeks before they divorced. Anthony's mum worked as a cleaner but she had rheumatoid arthritis and so her hands hurt a lot and so she couldn't do that for long and she ended up on a disability pension 
And Anthony and her mum and her, par her parents survived on uh, her disability pension and her mother's old age pension, and they lived in this housing commission. They did it really, really, really tough. Um, Anthony Albanese has not <laughs> come from privileged background at all. He's had a very tough upbringing, but his mother was tough, and she worked really hard to care for him and give him every opportunity, and he was tough too. And he worked really hard. He uh, went right through Catholic school and worked hard. He went to Sydney Uni. He studied economics. He did very well, and he got his way into politics, and he, he, he fought his way uh, up to becoming the leader of the Labor Party in 2019, and now he's the leader of our nation. So Albanese is a real testament to the reality that just because you're not born into privilege in this country doesn't mean you can't literally make it to the top. Now, it's a great country. It's a wonderful country. There's opportunities, really, uh, for many. You can make a great life for yourself, despite uh, not being born with wealth or privilege. Despite a rough childhood that's, let's be honest, was littered with sin, Albanese now has the privilege and the responsibility of leading our nation, a huge responsibility and a huge blessing to him. In our passage today, we will see that despite our own sin, <clears throat> despite our failings in the past, we too have been blessed with an immense privilege and also a great responsibility. But our privilege and responsibility doesn't come from our hard work. It's a gift from God. Now, like Anthony or not, I suspect our Prime Minister will not take his lofty office for granted, but he will work hard to the best of his ability, particularly given how hard he's worked to get to where he is. Our motivation is not our hard work, not our own hard work, but the grace of God poured out through Christ. And it's the knowledge that without Christ... Our community and those that we know and love are destined for destruction. And we learned this last week when they faced Jesus on Judgment Day. We know where we're all headed to judgment before a righteous God. We know that without Christ, we are doomed to destruction eternally. Hence, we have Paul's words in verse 11 here of chapter 5. Look with me again in your Bibles, but I'm going to start at verse 10. We must all appear, all people, before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what's due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we Christians know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. As Christians, we know what it is to fear the Lord, right? Or do we? Well, before we get to the kind of bit about persuading others, I just actually want to pause and think about the fear of the Lord. Do we know what it means to fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord every day? When you wake each morning, are you in a state of right fear of the Lord? It says we know what it is to fear the Lord. Proverbs, which is on the screen, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Psalm 111 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his, God's precepts, have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. All who follow his, footst his precepts, that means all who obey him, 
have good understanding. Take Abraham, for example. Now, we've been thinking about Abraham in our kid spots a bit, haven't we? Abraham, and this week, Isaac, his son as well, we thought about. Um, You may remember the last week we learned Abraham had to wait 100 years, Lara taught us from the Bible, Abraham had to wait 100 years before he had his first son. He was very old when he was blessed with his first son, Isaac. At some point, we don't really know, in Isaac's young life, God tested Abraham. We don't know how old Isaac was. We know that he was old enough to walk and we know that he was old enough to carry a bundle of sticks on his back. Not a massive bundle of sticks, but a bit of weight. So he's probably not a little boy. He might have been a teenager or something like that. We don't really know. Most certainly, Abraham had had more than enough time to grow very, very fond of his first son, of his son Isaac. And God's test was that Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac. God asked Abraham to walk Isaac up a mountain, three days walk, put him on an altar and sacrifice him. And because Abraham feared the Lord, he obeyed. And we read in Genesis, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham wasn't scared of God. He loved him. Abraham loved and trusted God so much he would do anything for him, anything that he asked of him. He loved and trusted God. In other words... He feared God. He trusted him and loved him so much, he knew in his heart, he knew in his guts that God's will is always good and right. Abraham saw himself as but a humble servant of his loving God. That's fear of the Lord to see ourselves as but humble servants of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Do you love him in your heart, in your guts, you know, deep? Do you love him deeply? Or do you question him in his goodness? Do you question his will for your life? Our kids are going through a phase where they question almost everything we ask them to do, even the little things. Why? Well, of course, they're sinful, and so am I, and not perfect. And Mostly, I think they're just asserting their independence. They kind of get to the age where they're starting to assert their independence, and that's normal. But that's the same as us when we question God, and that's not normal. When we question God, we assert our independence, against God, when we question his will, when we question his word, we're asserting our independence. We're grabbing the crown from his head and we're putting it on our head 
and saying, I'm not sure you're right here, I'm just going to think about it for myself and then I'll come to a conclusion and then I'll do that. We're asserting our independence when we question God. We're not fearing the Lord. But in the end, we will all stand before him in judgment and because we as Christians know this to be true, we ought to fear the Lord and try to persuade others as well to fear the Lord because we trust and we love God so much. We try to persuade others because he's asked us to. He's told us to. Because we love God, we try to persuade others. We try to do our best to help them to avoid a guilty verdict on the day of judgment. And because we love them and we don't want to see them be pronounced guilty on judgment day, we try to persuade others. We're certainly not trying to make ourselves out to be impressive or better than they are or anything like that. We just want to see them saved. And we just want to... Honour our God. And that was the issue that Paul was facing. Sorry, Jules, it's all right. Look at your Bibles again at verse 12. <coughs> We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Paul isn't trying to make himself look impressive. He just wants people to see Jesus as impressive. He's trying to just point people to him. And the Corinthian church, the the members of the Corinthian church, they ought to be proud of Paul. This is what he's saying. They ought to be proud of him because Paul loves them and Paul's mission-minded. He longs to see people get saved. And he's saying to the church, you know, be proud of the fact of what... What is in my heart, my love for you, my love for the lost, that's what ought to make you proud. Not how I look or speak, my heart. Paul's an evangelist, but he also loves his church. Any Christian who has a leader who loves them and they know it, and who has a heart for the lost and it's clear, they ought to be proud of their leader. Some of them are saying Paul's nuts because he doesn't look impressive like the super apostles we're going to hear about later on in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't care what they think. He's living for God and he's living for the church and he's living for the lost. He isn't nuts. He's just living for Jesus and living for his people. It's Christ's love for Paul that motivates Paul and energises Paul in his love for his church and his love for the lost. Christ's love gives us energy. I'm going to say that again because I feel like we, I don't know about you, but I often lack energy. (laughs) Christ's love gives us energy. It's motivating, it's energising. Now, I've got two of the greatest verses in the Bible and I would love for you all to have your Bibles in your lap. I heartily commend to you having your paper Bible and bring it to church if you can. It's not too inconvenient. There's nothing like your own little Bible with your notes and things. Two of the greatest verses in the Bible. Big call, but I'm saying it. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced 
that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's two verses to build your life on. In fact, a dear friend of ours who passed away somewhat recently, he was Lara's youth minister, and he ran a church in Pitt Town, his name was Greg, and this was his favourite verses in the Bible that he built his life on. I want you to read it again in your Bibles, just to yourself. Read those two verses again. I'm just going to give you a few seconds. Christ's love compels us. And just a few verses ago, we know what it is to fear the Lord. How, is it, how do those things work together? How is it possible to be motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ? These things have just been mashed together just a few verses apart. They seem to contradict each other, fear and love. Aren't fear and love irreconcilable? There's no fear in love, is there? Aren't they opposites? Well, it depends on a proper understanding of fear and love. They're not opposites. The opposite of love is hate. In the Bible, fear is not cringing terror, but holy reverence. And love is not romantic feelings, but sacrificial care. These two words work together. They're consistent. They're reconcilable. The fear of the Lord and awareness of the love of Christ fit perfectly together and when put together, are inspiringly motivating and energising for Christian ministry. When we fear the Lord rightly and we see Christ's love for us rightly and deeply, we will be motivated, we'll be compelled, like something that's propelled quickly. We will be compelled. The same word is used when the, the, the people rushed to see Jesus in the New Testament as he was performing miracles and they gathered in the house and they gathered when he fed the 5,000, the, they, they were compelled to see Jesus. This is the same compulsion that we feel when we understand the fear of the Lord, when we have fear of the Lord and we have an understanding of Christ's love for us. There is no greater motivation in life than knowing that you are loved and no greater motivation again than knowing that Jesus loves you so much he was willing to give up his life for you. And our natural and necessary response is to give up our own will and submit to Jesus' loving rule, as did Abraham. Even at the face of the reality that his son might die, that he waited a hundred years for, he was a humble servant. Our natural and necessary response is to give up our own, put to death our own will for our lives and to humbly submit underneath Jesus' will for our lives. You can't have a foot in both worlds. You cannot serve both Jesus and your own self-centred hopes and dreams. I think we try. 
But in all areas of our life, your time, your thoughts, your habits, your words, your money, all areas of our lives must be placed under the Lordship of Christ. And when they are, we will be so compelled out of the love from Christ that we will live for him wholeheartedly. We must die to self if we are to be in Christ. If we're unwilling to let go of our own will for ourselves, we haven't yet grasped Christ's love for us. We haven't yet grasped the joy and the freedom to be found in the fear of the Lord. Jesus died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died for us. When you get that in your mind and your heart and your gut, life becomes simple, not easy, uncomplicated. It'll be easy on the other side of Jesus' return. Now it's hard, especially for Christians, especially in our country, which is going to... The persecution here is only going to increase, I promise. But life becomes uncomplicated. When we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, including ourselves, we see clearly, look at verse 16 in your Bibles. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. We now live for Jesus. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus, so we obey him out of fear and love. It's simple. We don't fear people and what they think of us. We care about people, and so to an extent we care about what they think about us, but we don't fear what people think of us. We clearly see someone who is saved or they need saving. That's the most important thing. People are saved or they need saving. The Jews feared Jesus so greatly in the first century, they, they put him to death. Such was their fear for Jesus. Paul went around when his name was Saul, arresting and even killing Jesus' followers. But no more. Jesus blinded Paul so that he might see clearly that Jesus is Lord. And once the scales fell from Paul's eyes, Paul made it his life's ambition to persuade others to trust in Jesus too. Jesus blinded Paul so he might see clearly that Jesus is Lord. My vision is starting to deteriorate. It's very sad. I can see myself now having to kind of hold my Bible further away so that I can read it. I was talking to my brother-in-law the other night when we got together for whatever, have a meal. He's an orthoptist, an eye nurse. And uh, he said, hold out as long as you can before you get glasses. <laughs> Once you get them, you're stuck with them and your eyes will even get worse. And those with glasses know it's a bit of a pain in the butt uh, to have glasses. But he said, at some point, you're just going to need them and you're just going to have to get over yourself uh, and get them. As Christians, we do not walk around as someone who really, really needs glasses but can't find them. That is what those without Jesus do, though. 
Those without Jesus can't see the world clearly. We know what it is to fear the Lord, so we desperately try to persuade others, lest they face God's judgment without the shield that is Jesus. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, that is all people, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're Christ's representatives on earth. Ambassadors are sent to another country to represent the country they came from, and they go with the full force of the law of the country they came from and the authority of the country they came from. We are, you are Christ's ambassadors, the Lord of the universe, the one through whom all things were made and all things are sustained. You are his representative. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation from Jesus. Oh my goodness. Wow. This is the role we've been given as his people to persuade others to be reconciled. What an immense privilege we have as Christ's ambassadors. And because we fear God and we love Jesus, we're compelled to do what he's told us to do to be his ambassador. Our church has a missional DNA. It always has. It's been our focus focus from day one to to share the gospel, to to practice evangelism. It still is. We do it individually, one-to-one with our friends and neighbours, and we do it corporately. We serve at the election barbecue to try to connect with the community. We're putting on a movie night in September to try to connect with the community, especially the school community. We pray for our friends, for our neighbours, we don't know Jesus. Every year from Sydney Union Mission Team joins us for Christmas Mission. We do what we can because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation because we fear God and love Jesus. So we take this ministry seriously. God has created... Here you go again, Jules. Those slides are all bad. <laughs> now, just ignore the slide, please. Sorry. Back in your Bibles, chapter 6, God has created this moment in history (coughs) where salvation through faith in Jesus is on offer, but it's only on offer for a time. Chapter 6, verse 2 says, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Now, those of you close to my age or older, will remember that in April 1996, the Port Arthur massacre happened. A gunman went into a cafe, he killed 35 people for no particular reason, and he wounded 23 other people. Following the massacre, John Howard, the Prime Minister, had a great gun amnesty, and he made it illegal to possess firearms, unless you had a really, really good reason for it, and a licence, and there were stringent rules, and he gave everyone a year to hand in weapons 
even if they were very, very illegal weapons, to hand them in with no charge. There was an amnesty. There was no fear of prosecution as long as you handed in the weapons that year. You had one year to hand them in. And thousands and thousands, it was scary. It really was scary how many weapons and the the range of weapons that just appeared at police stations. Hand it in, walk away. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But a time exists right now when anyone can come to the Lord, repent of their sin and put their trust in him and be forgiven. They can have their slate wiped clean without fear of prosecution because Jesus has already taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself. There's this great amnesty, opportunity to be forgiven free of charge. Friends, with great... What have we got, Jules? That's what I want. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Is that the line? With great power comes great responsibility, isn't it? That's Spider-Man's line. Uh, given to him by his father-in-law or something. His grandfather. I don't know, it doesn't matter. We have privilege, but do we not have power as well as Christ's ambassadors? We don't wield Jesus' power. But the Holy Spirit in us has given us ability to be Christ's ambassadors on earth to share the gospel with people. We have faith in Jesus. We have the fear of the Lord. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're not Superman, not superheroes like Spider-Man here. But this faith and this fear and this love from Christ and for Christ must compel us to love others, as it did for Spider-Man. He got all this power and he's like, I should help people. Now I've got all this power. Next slide. We too have the fear of the Lord. We have the love of Christ. We have the indwelling Holy. We should help people. We ought to persuade others to trust in Jesus too. Like Prime Minister Albanese, we have come from even more humble beginnings. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of God's just judgment and wrath. But in his immense mercy, not our hard work. God rescued us and made us his ambassadors, his co-workers, it says. Chapter 6, God's, God's co-workers. It's an extraordinary reality that we do not want to take for granted. We want to honour our Lord and his immense blessing to us. Hence, chapter 6, verse 1, look with me. As God's co-workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. Do you fear the Lord? Every morning when you wake up, do you love and trust him? Do you love Jesus? Are you motivated, compelled by Jesus' love for you? If so, don't receive God's grace in vain. Rather, make every effort to persuade others, as I know many of you do, which warms my heart. Do you not fear the Lord? Do you not wake up thinking, what does God want me to do today? Can I encourage you to go back to the Bible? Go back to the Gospels, read again. Can you grab a pen or your phone with a kind of your notes app 
whatever, piece of paper, pen, phone with a notes app, one or the other. Who do you know that you want to see saved? You wish this person, these two people, these three people, don't make it 10, this is only going to be a 30-second exercise. You wish they were saved. Who is it? Write them down. Write their names down. This is just for you. Teachers, I won't be collecting and marking. This is just for you. Who do you want to see saved that you know? Well, you ought to be praying for them, and I assume, I assume you are. But here's a question. What's the next step that you personally will take in order to persuade just one of those people on the list to put their trust in Jesus? Since we fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. That's what we do. Who on that list are you going to try to persuade? And how are you going to do it? Why don't you discuss it over morning tea or a growth group this week? Or both? Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, it is an incredible, extraordinary, unthinkable blessing. Not only that you've saved us, but you've made us your co-workers. You've made us your ambassadors, God. It's just humbling you would love us and entrust to us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, we do not want to take your grace in vain. We pray that you help us to feel the heights, the depths of your love, the heights, the depths of this incredible blessing. May we be your humble servants, fearing you, obeying you, making our will for our lives your will for our lives making your will our will. Help us to do what you ask. And we see today, Lord, that one of the things you ask of us is to try to persuade others. So help us to do that. Some of us are shy. Some of us, I don't know where to start. But we know we need to. So, Lord, help us help each other. Thank you for the wonderful resource of our church, of our growth groups. Help us to help one another. Try to, try to persuade others. We know it's you that saves. Help us to try to persuade. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.